Good morning, Four Corners Church. Praise God for another time to gather as this local expression of the kingdom of God. That is a very big idea, the kingdom of God, and sometimes we forget that this right here is the kingdom of God in action among us, this local body of believers in all of the mundane of life and all of the simplicity and sort of the lowliness and humility of just normal daily life, God's kingdom at work among us here in each of our lives and among us as we gather. So we praise God for this privilege to be here once again. If you would, go ahead and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 13. Romans 7, 7 to 13. As Trey said last week, we are definitely swimming in the deep end of Romans. And I know it seems like uh, you could find quotes like this on any passage in Romans, but I came across a a little video clip of a a well-known scholar talking about this passage, and uh, I thought this was the case for Philippians 2, uh, 6 through 11. But he said that uh, Romans 7 has been the most commented on uh, chunk of Scripture in all of the history of the church. It's been the most commented uh, on in, uh, in the Bible. So that's, that definitely is the deep end, uh, if there is. So Romans 7 is where we are. And I want to thank Trey for his sermon last week on the last three Psalms. It's great to see the beginning of a book and also to see or to see the end of it, and particularly the Psalms, and to see those last three Psalms hanging together. He had prepared to preach that sermon back in January, but had gotten sick, so I'm glad we were able to hear it last week. It really was such a blessing. And what a fitting crescendo to the Psalms. I mean, we know the Psalms have played such a significant role in the lifeblood of the Christian church. And in many of our lives, we've seen God use the Psalms in particular to bring comfort, uh, to show us who God is, his character. But what a fitting crescendo to the Psalms we got last week. And even in that last verse, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And then again, praise the Lord. And as Christians... We know that our praise centers on the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are people, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 20, who are to be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting about that verse is he is describing what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. So being filled with the Spirit is not this uh, mystical thing. It's not this charismatic thing. Being filled with the Spirit very concretely is living a life where our very breath is to give thanks to God the Father through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And so that is how we praise God most fundamentally, with our breath, thanking God for his work in Christ. Christ has freed us from the guilt and power of sin. 
He has transferred us from eternal death to eternal life, from condemnation to justification. And Christ has moved us from being under the law, this language we've seen recently, from being under the law to being under grace. And Paul says this in Romans 6, verse 14, which we covered here just recently. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now that sentence should strike us. It should should cause us to kind of scratch our heads a little bit and not just keep reading, but to pause and consider. Because we notice here a relationship between sin and the law. Being under law means being under sin. Now that's difficult to wrap our minds around that. Those are the deep waters that we are in right now. To be under the law is to be under sin. Let me read that verse again. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Not being under law means not being under the dominion of sin. This is perplexing to us. And it is this relationship between sin and the law that Paul deals with in our text for today as we come to verses 7 to 13. Now, so far in chapter 7, we've seen the fact that Christians have died to the law. That's the way Paul began the chapter. We have died to the law. We've been remarried to Christ. So Paul will use the the death of a spouse and remarriage imagery in verses 2 and 3 of uh, this chapter to illustrate this point that we've died to the law and now we've been joined, being freed now from the law, we've been joined to another. And we've been given, after Paul does that, we've been given by him an explanation for why that needed to happen. So in the first four verses, he just states it as a fact. We've died to the law. But in those last two verses of our passage last time, verses 5 and 6, he explains why that needed to happen for the Christian. Why is it that the Christian needs to die to the law? But in some ways, those first six verses raise more questions than they answer. And we've seen that, I think, in gospel community group discussion as we're trying to sort of wrap our minds around. We want a simple answer to these questions, but Paul takes an entire chapter to unpack it. And so we're seeing it unfold. We're seeing the flower bloom as we follow Paul's logic. And so those first six verses may for you have created more questions in your mind than answers. And that is why we have verses 7 to 25. Paul wants to further explain and clarify what he's been saying about this need to die to the law. This very emphatic statement, this very startling and striking statement, die to the law, gets fleshed out in the remainder of this chapter. So the title for the sermon this morning is When the Sinner Meets the law, when the sinner meets the law. And if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together.
So we're going to be looking today at verses 7 to 13, but I want you to have the logic of the passage very much in place. So follow closely with me as I read. I'm going to start in verse 1 and go all the way to verse 13. So just follow along with Paul's argument. This is God's word. This is really God's word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you see that was an illustration for his point. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That is all of us before we were saved. Verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And now for our passage for today. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And we're going to go ahead. Verse 13 is a transition between this chunk and the next chunk. We're going to go ahead and include it in today's. So verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's give thanks to God for his word. And let's ask that he will illuminate it for us here today. We, we need him uh, to show us clearly what's here. We need him to work in our hearts if any transformation is going to happen. But we know that God's word goes out with power. But that powerful effect comes only by the Holy Spirit. And so we want to ask for that now. Father, we have so much to praise you for. Even as we heard last week, the inanimate objects of the universe are tokens of your praise. They're 
emblems of your glory. They show forth who you are. It is as though even without lips they praise you. And God, you have given us lips, a tongue, lungs, breath, a mind with which to give you praise. So Father, we just take this moment now and we praise you for all the blessings that you have given us in life, for our very lives, and all the spiritual blessings that we have through Jesus Christ. As Paul so eloquently describes in that jam-packed passage of Ephesians 1. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word that we can gather like this and not be in the dark about the riches of the gospel, not be in the dark about what you want for us, what pleases you, not be in the dark about who we were and who we now are, and who we call others to be. But Father, to see these things clearly, this is a great gift, and we praise you for it, God. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for Paul's letter to the Romans, which has had such uh, just a, an amazing effect on, on the history of the church. And in many of our lives, we've seen you work grace through this epistle. God, we thank you for what you're even doing in our church right now in the hearts of people as we go through this book. And Lord, we pray for that this morning as we gather now to read your word and study it, have it preached and listen to it being preached. Lord, we pray that your spirit who authored it, who inspired Paul, the human author, to write it and who carried Paul along in that writing so that every word of this epistle is god breathed and true, profitable and perfect, holy. And so God, we, as we come to it now, we pray that your spirit would use it in mighty ways to transform us into the likeness of our Savior. God, we just pray now that you would help me and help us to listen and help it to be clear. We ask for your guidance. In Christ's name, amen. So Paul in this passage, wants to accomplish two major things in verses 7 to 13. First, he wants to explain the negative effect that the law has on the sinner. There's the sinner. Law comes along. It's not pretty what happens. And so Paul wants to explain that. That's the reason we need to die to the law is because of what happens when the sinner is confronted by the law. We need to die to sin, and in dying to sin, we also die to the law. These things are a package deal, as I have said before. So he wants to explain the negative effect that the law has on the sinner. And secondly, he wants to uphold the law itself as a positive thing. So our two points for this morning are up on the screen. And let me just encourage you, uh, kids, to uh, at least write these down, write the, the, the title and the points, and then you can uh, just try to catch certain things as you listen to the sermon. Work on listening to sermons. Practice listening to sermons. It, uh, it does get easier in some ways, but if you're training yourself now as a child to sit under the preaching of God's Word, 
then when you become an adult, you'll be that much more able to hold focus and follow logic and to really get the meaning of the Bible. So we have these two points, the negative effect and the positive evaluation. The negative effect that the law has on the sinner and the positive evaluation of the law itself. So first, let's look at the negative effect. And we're going to take verses 7 to 11 together. This point will be a little longer because we're taking on more text here. But I want to treat verses 7 through 11 under this first point, the negative effect. So let's look at those one more time. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That sounds terrible. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So here we have the negative effect or the negative effects, but it really is a package. It's a chain reaction. So it's not as though you have this effect and then that effect and this effect I may have, but not that effect. They all come together as a package and they all follow one another sequentially as a chain. Paul begins this section in a way that we've seen before. Paul likes this uh, rhetorical approach. He entertains a misguided question. As I said a few weeks ago, often a stupid question. He entertains this question that one might ask based on his previous argument. So he's going through, he's moving along, and he's making a case. He's making an argument. He's explaining the gospel. And as he does that, there are certain kinds of questions that Maybe skeptical hearers might ask, or those who are objecting to Paul's message, or those who are trying to find holes in Paul's argument might bring forward. Or maybe just simple folks who really are trying to follow this but are scratching their heads. He entertains a misguided question, and then he responds to that question with a hammer. By no means. Absolutely not. God forbid. And if you lined up all the English translations, you would see all the different ways that this is translated. It is a very strong, emphatic, no way at all. It says it cannot be. And in this case, the question concerns the law. That's how he begins. Is it bad? Is the law bad? Is it sin? The question is, I suppose, somewhat reasonable, given Paul's argument that one needs to die to it in order to be saved, right? I mean, that kind of follows. If you need to die to something, then it suggests that that thing you need to die to is bad. And Paul has already gone on to say we need to die to sin. And so if he then says we need to die to the law, it suggests that sin and law kind of can be equated. That the law is bad, even that the law is sin. Well, Paul 
responds to this in what we are going to see a little bit later. But one of the things that makes it even more reasonable, perhaps, is what Paul says in verses 5 and 6, which we just read a moment ago. In verses 5 and 6, Paul explains why it is that we need to die to the law. So we've already covered a little bit of what we're going to cover today. Today is going to be more explanation, more clarification. But what we saw last time in verses 5 and 6, where Paul says, this is why you need to die to the law, that much more raises this sort of question. The law must be bad. We're going to come back to this evaluation of the law itself in our next point, the positive evaluation. So we're just gonna, we're gonna pause here and come back to this in verse 12. But for now, I want you to see where Paul takes his argument in verse 7, the remainder of verse 7 into verse 8. And what we find in these verses are the negative effects that occur in the life of the sinner when the law comes into the picture. So you have the sinner there. The law comes into the picture. Sinner meets law. What are the negative effects that Paul describes here? And I'll list them for you. List them for you briefly here in just a moment. But rather than liberate the sinner from sin, the law is used by sin to push the sinner deeper into sin. Now that's contrary to the way that the Pharisees, for example, would have thought about the law or would have taught the law. The idea that the law comes along and it sort of boosts you up into life. It boosts you up into heaven. There you are in your sin. Law comes along. You begin to keep the law. And it's as though the law is just raising you up to eternal life. But that's not the case at all. In fact, the law actually has the very opposite effect on the sinner. And this would have been a, as I've said before, a striking message to a Jewish hearer who would have been steeped in this conception that the law raises you up and puts you in heaven. Instead, Paul says, no, 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 no. The law smashes you down and drags you to hell. It's incredible. That's why Paul takes so much time to explain them. Now to us, Christians living this many years after Christ, we don't really see the need to go into such detail here. But if you would have been living as a Christian in the first century, as either a Jew or a proselyte to the Jewish faith, a Roman, a Greco-Roman person, a Gentile, who had come to faith in the Jewish God, this would have been extremely relevant. So it's helpful for us to go back and understand what Paul is saying. And Paul describes this effect or this pack of effects or this chain of effects. He describes this in three phases. And I haven't put these up there so you can write them down. Here they are. Three phases for the negative effect that the law has on the sinner. So first, knowledge. Second, activation. And third, death. Knowledge, activation, and death. So let's look at each of these. First, knowledge. What happens when the sinner meets the law? What happens to any of us growing up in the world as children? What happens when we meet the law? 
First answer, knowledge. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So you see that the law comes along to the sinner and brings knowledge that was not there before. We could say that was not there to that degree before. So picture the sinner in general. Moving along in life, yes, this person is made in the image of God. Yes, this person has a conscience, but that image is marred, and that conscience has been stifled and silenced, and the truth of God in nature has been suppressed. So if you want a picture of this, what's happening in the world among the unsaved, it's Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32 which we looked at a while ago. But we saw there in that passage a description of what happens on the inside of the sinner, the person who is unsaved, who is not in Christ, who is in Adam, as they are moving through life. What they have done in their consciences and what they have suppressed with their minds. Or picture Israel as a nation moving through history prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. They knew that they were sinners. Joseph's brothers knew they had sinned against Joseph in what they did. I imagine, I'm sure, Abraham knew it was wrong to lie, or Abram at the time, to lie about his wife Sarah as he went down into Egypt, saying that she was merely his Sister, And we see all of these other sins preceding the giving of the law. They knew that they were sinners, but not having the law. They did not have the law to showcase sin for what it really is. In all of its nastiness and in all of its ugliness. So they knew that they were sinners. And they had the revelation of God going all the way back to Seth, to Adam and Eve. Going down through Noah and down through Abraham And down through Jacob and the patriarchs. But they did not have the law to showcase the intricacies and ugliness of sin. Or picture Paul himself. As we read this autobiographical I. As we read here. I would not have known sin if it had not been for the law. Now what is Paul referring to here as he's talking about himself autobiographically moving through and enters the law. What is he referring to? Well, maybe Paul is referring to himself as a boy, as a child, before coming to a full understanding of the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. Or maybe he is describing a later time when he came, even as a Pharisee, to see his inability to really keep the law. And so he began to see the law, perhaps as a Pharisee, for what it truly was saying. Either way, and this is one, by the way, everything I've just said in the last few minutes, that's the reason, one of the reasons there's so much uh, debate over this passage. Is, uh, the scholars trying to identify here is, is this Israel? Uh, is this Paul speaking in the place of Israel? Is this Paul speaking as every man? Is this Paul really speaking as 
Adam or is this Paul uh, using an autobiographical eye? He's actually speaking of himself. And scholars debate the extent to which these things can kind of go together and it maybe is not an either or but a both and and so forth. These are difficult questions. But either way, what Paul says here is clear. When the law comes, the knowledge of sin comes. When the law enters, the knowledge of sin enters. And we've already seen this in Romans so far. Chapter 3, verse 20. You'll remember after Paul gives that really intense description of human sinfulness. I mean, no one does good. No one seeks after God. Uh, The throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I mean, it's just a, a really nasty picture of human life. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's where he ends. Not a little, but no fear of God. Zero fear of God before their eyes. And he goes on to talk about how this puts people under condemnation, these very words. And he says in Romans 3 verse 20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul has already made this point before, and here he explains it in more detail. And Paul highlights specifically, here you'll notice, the tenth commandment. He hones in on one commandment. Now, he could have taken a Ray Comfort approach and gone through all the Ten Commandments. Perfectly uh, valid, and you've seen maybe some of those Ray Comfort videos. He's an evangelist who goes out in the street, and he preaches the gospel, and he uh, tries to get people who come up who don't believe in God or who are not Christians to see that they have broken the Ten Commandments, and that therefore they need a Savior. They need Christ. But Paul here hones in on one commandment, and it's the Tenth commandment, you shall not covet. I kind of want to sing it because of the catechism song. You guys who maybe listen to that catechism song know at the very end how it sort of ends in that, that jingle, uh, you shall not covet. I, I'm not even going to try to do that. Some of you are thinking, go for it. I'm not going to do it. You shall not covet. Why? Why does Paul focus in on this one commandment? Because it is both comprehensive, and immediately internal. That's the reason Paul hones in on this one commandment as the quintessential example of the sin exposer. You shall not covet. It gets right to the heart, doesn't it? Coveting is basically forbidden desire. Understood in it with its broadest definition, It is basically forbidden desire. It shows up in the Ten Commandments with respect to uh, someone else's property or someone else's uh, spouse or, or something else that belongs to someone. To look upon someone else's something or someone and to want that thing or person is coveting. But more broadly, we can understand it as forbidden Desire. It is elevating something desired above God Himself. It is turning a thing, a desirable object, a thing or a person or an experience or whatever, into God. 
into the greatest treasure. It is worship of self and worship of created things. We see it in Eve's heart and presumably Adam's heart as well in the garden. That is why Paul refers to covetousness as idolatry. In Colossians 3, verse 5, and Ephesians 5, 5, he specifically says that covetousness is idolatry. In other words, the 10th commandment, to break the 10th commandment is to break the first and second commandment. Do you see that? And if you break the 10th commandment, then you have already broken the other commandments to your neighbor in specific ways. The 10th commandment gets to the deepest levels of the heart. As with the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember we spent a year in the Sermon on the Mount and we saw how penetrating that passage is. It gets to the recesses of the heart, those spaces where nobody knows about. Nobody but you. It goes down to the lowest level, to the foundation of the heart. No one can escape the penetrating demand of this commandment. You know, one might be able to say that they have not outwardly broken the other commandments. And that's probably what many of the Pharisees would have said as they were moving about, leading the people astray, combating Jesus, is they probably would have said that they kept the law just fine. They were focused on the outward keeping of the commandments. They knew that they had not killed anyone. They knew that they had not committed adultery outwardly. But Jesus directs them in the Sermon on the Mount to the heart. And so too does the 10th commandment. And that's why it's interesting. Jesus is doing what the law was already doing in the Old Testament. And we tried to show that in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus did not come along to, to uh, create something new. He was the fulfillment of the old we see the truth of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount already in this 10th commandment. This commandment showcases sin for what it is and leaves absolutely no one with any doubt about his or her own personal sinfulness. But as we'll see, this knowledge does not stay by itself. There's a chain reaction. And so now we need to go to the second effect or the second part of this package of effects that we find from the law. Second is activation. So first knowledge, second activation. Look at verse eight. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So what happens? This is kind of a narrative, really. Paul's, Paul's giving a narrative uh, of, of the mind or heart of the sinner as this occurs, as the law enters. What happens to a sinner once this knowledge occurs, once sin is shown to be sin, which is the point we just looked at? Answer Sin uses the law as an opportunity or as an occasion. This word appears twice in this passage, and it really means a base of operations. This is a, a bridgehead for attack. 
Sin uses the law as a base of operations for more sinning. The sinner can't do otherwise when confronted by the law. And see, that's the problem. If, if the sinner is there and the knowledge of sin or the law comes along and there's the exposing of sin and the knowledge of sin and you can auto-correct, you could say, okay, let me address that and then move beyond it and you begin to move beyond another and the more you, law, the more you study the law and you meditate on the law, then you, you can begin to move beyond all of your sins. It doesn't happen that way, Paul is saying. Knowledge of sin inevitably leads here where sin uses the law as a base of operations for more sinning. Sin is activated. It is animated. It comes to life in a new way. It was there before, but something springs to life now when the law comes along. In other words, when coveting is discovered for what it is, and the sinner faces the law against coveting, coveting becomes rampant, Paul says. Not overcome, but it becomes rampant. It becomes pervasive. The law comes along and now coveting just takes over the person's heart, takes over the person's life. Part of what's going on here is the rebellious response to God's law. As we talked about two weeks ago, Augustine of Hippo, you may know him as St. Augustine, uh, he is probably the most significant figure in the history of Christianity after the apostles, arguably. And Augustine in his Confessions, which is his autobiography, uh, it's one of the first in Western history, uh, and it's, uh, it's incredible to read his journey. If you haven't read that, that is, that is kind of like ground zero reading for a Christian. So just put down whatever other book you're reading and pick that one up and read it first. It is fundamental Christian reading. And what, one of the things that Augustine describes in his confessions is how he, he recognized that he and a band of his friends got together and went and stole some pears and what he found in his own heart was that he didn't need any pears to eat. He had pears at home, and they were good pears. He didn't need the food. It, it wasn't like he was starving. He just did it because he knew it was wrong. And he reflects on that sin. As he, and when he became a Christian, he looked back over his life, and he reflected on sin in his life as a theologian and as, as a preacher. And he, He's thinking about his own story of God's grace. It's an incredible story of God's grace and a praying mother and so forth. But here's what he says about that event, that stealing for the, state, for the sake of stealing. He says, was it possible to take pleasure in what was illicit for no reason other than that it was not allowed? Just the sheer pleasure of rebellion against rules, against laws, against rightness. Just the sheer rebellion. You see, we see this in children. We saw it in ourselves as children. Just say no, and then there's activated 
This desire to do that very thing that you've said not to do. Or consider in Pilgrim's Progress, as John Bunyan describes the dusty room in the interpreter's house. The room is like the human heart. The sweeper is like the law. As the dust is stirred up by the sweeper, it has a suffocating effect. The dust moving about, that's what the law does with sin. The law enters. It doesn't start to sort of get rid of all that dust. No, it stirs it up and makes it suffocating all throughout the room. That is what the law does when it meets the sinner. When the knowledge that the law brings comes, it inevitably and immediately leads to this activation and animation and extension of sin. That's what happens. Thirdly, the end result of this chain reaction is death. And we've talked about that already before, but I want to read these verses, verses 9 through 11. I was once alive apart from the law. And this is, a, this is not life in its sort of eternal sense. This is life just going about in complacency, not recognizing these things without knowledge, apart from the knowledge that the law brings, just moving about living. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. You see, the reason why the Pharisees and others in the Old Testament would have seen the law the way they did is because that's what the law said about itself. The law says it gives life. The law holds out life for those who would keep it. The law holds out the promise of life, but in the hands of sinners, it brings only death. So right estimation of the law, Pharisee, wrong estimation of yourself. The law holds out the promise of life, but in the hands of sinners, it brings only death. Condemnation due to the guilt of sin and enslavement to the power of sin. That's the death that it brings. So, knowledge, activation, death, these are the negative effects of the law when met by the sinner. By the way, this is the sort of thing you should be looking for in your children as you raise them in the Lord. They didn't come out of the womb Saints, they did not come out of the womb in Christ. They very much came out of the womb in Adam. And so here's the thing. As we raise them, what we're interested in doing is putting the law of God before. This is one of the reasons why spanking children is so important. This is one of the reasons why consistency in applying discipline is so important. is because they need to see that sin brings consequences. They need to be held accountable to the law in order that they may come to see their need for Christ. We're going to see that more 
in a moment. But one of the things we're doing as parents is seeing the effect of the law on their hearts. As they come to see their sin for what it is. And we see that activation of sin. That rebellion going on in their lives and in their hearts. And the death that it brings. The enslavement that it brings. The guilt before God and helping them understand that that power is in place. That guilt is in place unless they are freed by Christ. That is our most significant responsibility as parents. Not just having the right disciplines and routines in place. Check. Not just getting them to pray a sinner's prayer. Check. Or getting them to say the right words with regard to Jesus or the Bible or whatever else. Check. Those are not our ultimate ends. Our ultimate ends is to put the law of God before them so that it might do its work in the heart. That they might be liberated from sin and death. Through Jesus Christ. We come now to our second point, and that is the positive evaluation. So we've seen the negative effect, and now we come to the positive evaluation. Now we need to go back to that opening question. Let's return now to the beginning of verse 7, where we get that opening question and that emphatic answer. Is the law sin? By no means. Paul has been doing two things up to this point. So if you're kind of following what's going on, he's been doing two things. He's been explaining why we need to die to the law. That's the first thing. That's from the first six verses. We've got to die to the law. Now he's explaining why that has to happen. And we've just seen, because this is what happens when the law enters for the sinner. So we've got to die to the law, be remarried to Christ, and then the law becomes something new altogether for us. So he's been explaining why we need to die to the law, and he's been upholding the law. That's the point we haven't gotten into yet, and that's what we come to now. Paul is, in this passage, upholding the law. All along, he's been explaining that sin, not the law, is the real culprit. So if, we, if you've been following this, who is guilty? The sin. The sin in the sinner. That's where the guilt is found. The sinner himself. Sin here being personified. Sin is the culprit, not the law. Look at verses 12 to 13 as we finish up this morning. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That which is good then bring, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What an incredible description of God's law we have here in these verses, particularly in verse 12. Look at these words. Holy, righteous, Good. You know, it would have been sufficient for Paul to simply use one of these words to make his point. If Paul wanted to make his point that the problem is not the law, it is sin, and what sin does with the law, he could have just used any one of these points and it would have been fine. 
but he does not do that. Paul is being emphatic here. He wants to be very clear. The law is wonderful. It is holy and righteous and good. I love this very succinct quote from Calvin. He says, It is holy and therefore to be regarded with the highest reverence. It is just and cannot therefore be charged with anything wrong. It is good and hence pure and free from everything that can do harm. That pretty much sums it up. Holy and righteous and good. But here's something very important we need to understand about the law. What we're really looking at when we look at the law is the expression of God's character. It's not like there's God and then there is his law. Or, it, or, or there's God and he has to obey the justice of his law. It's something above God. Uh, as though, you know, some, some sort of law that he has generated that's above him, outside of him, that he has to adhere to. No! The law is the very expression of who God is. The very expression of his character. And that is why each of these words are used of God. Holy and righteous and good. So Leviticus 20 verse 26. Listen to this. For I the Lord am holy. Or 2 Chronicles 12 6. The Lord is righteous. Or 2 Chronicles 30 verses 18 to 19. For Hezekiah had prayed for them saying may the good Lord, pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God. Holy and righteous and good. I was recently reading something in Exodus and uh, God is going through these laws, very specific laws about how uh, foreigners are to be treated and and, um, uh, daughters of, of men are to be treated in terms of betrothal and marriage and all these little details about how people are to be treated. And there's a point there where God says, I am compassionate. He declares it, and of course we see compassion incarnate in the person of Jesus. As he moves around healing people, caring for people, even looking at the rich young ruler with with love in his heart towards him, who won't let go of his possessions to follow Christ. Love and mercy and grace and compassion. The law is holy and righteous and good. There is nothing wrong with the law in itself. In fact, the law is God's perfect standard for human living. Let me say it this way. It is God's only standard for human living. It's not as I heard someone say recently, uh, the gold standard. Like there's a silver standard and a bronze standard. No, there's one standard. And it is golden, more precious even than much fine gold, as Adam read to us earlier. It is God's perfect standard for human living. When Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he is referring to the breaking of God's holy and righteous and good Law. That's what it means to sin. To sin is to fall short of this glorious standard that God has given. When Jesus is described as being without sin 
in Hebrews 4.15, it means that he never disobeyed God's law. Now that, that's just hard to fathom. It's, it's so mysterious. It's so profound that the God-man, the fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, Jesus Christ, the person, the one person of Jesus Christ, that he was entirely without sin. And look at it this way. Jesus never coveted. Not a single instance of coveting came out of his beautiful heart. He was perfectly adhering through his life to the law of God. And not only is the law perfect in its character, it is also perfect in its purposes. And that's where verse 13 ends. As we finish up today, verse 13 ends by making that clear. It says that the law can, as the law confronts sin, or the law confronts sin in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Do you hear the purpose language there? In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In a sense, it's kind of like uh, what we read uh, in Genesis, where God takes what, what the brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. God turns things that work for evil into good. And when sin gets a hold of the law, it's turned to these negative effects. But what we're reading here, verse 13, is that God uses that for positive ends. This work of the law mentioned in verse 13 is needed for the reception of the gospel. Now, you may have experienced it differently than John Bunyan, but when you came to faith in Christ, the law of God convicted you so that you might come to know your need for a Savior and might turn to Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise God for the law. Do you see the good purpose? It's not just the good character of the law, but it is the good purpose of the law. The law prepares the heart. It rakes over the heart. It shows it how sinful it truly is. It is used by sin to activate and accentuate sin and to even make sin sinful beyond measure as the evil culprit that it is in misusing God's perfect law. Sin is so wicked that it even does this with God's law. That's what Paul is saying. Not just that it is a breaking of the law, but that it takes the law and twists it and perverts it and through it uses it as a base for more sinning. Wow, do you see that? You see how grievous sin is. And all of this, Paul says, happens in order that one might look to the remedy. See sin. See Sin in all of its flavors. All kinds of covetousness. See the rebellion. See what is sinful beyond measure. And then look to Christ. See all of that mounted up. And then look to the one 
who came. There's good news. He came for sinners. He didn't come for the well. He didn't come for those who have it already worked out. He didn't come for those who had already given up all their sins and were on their way to heaven. And he came to just sort of pop them over the edge into heaven. No, he came for sick people, for sin sick people. He came for people with dark hearts, with selfish hearts, with murderous hearts and blasphemous hearts and lustful hearts and greedy, covetous hearts. He came for us. And he died in our place as the sacrifice for sin. He paid the price as the sinner on the tree so that we could be forgiven and move from being in Adam to being in Christ. Move from living according to the flesh to according to the Spirit. And that's what Paul begins Romans 8 with. We're, we're really moving there. Some scholars call Romans 7 a parenthesis. It's kind of iffy to call it something like that. But it, in a sense, Paul ended, look back at, at verse 6. Having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now fast forward to chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's where we're headed. Life in the Spirit through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. We thank you that before Christ, it shows us our sinfulness, the, the great depth of our corruption. Lord, we praise you for that work because without that we would never come to the Savior. We praise you, Lord, now as Christians that we have your precious law that equips us for every good work that encourages us. And as Paul will say later in Romans 15, through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures that we might have hope. The Scriptures encourage us. The, the law encourages us. It shows us what we are to be and how we are to live. And we live it in the power of the Spirit. God, we thank you for your law, which is holy and righteous and good. Lord, we thank you for the Redeemer who kept your law who is the perfect God-man. We thank you that in him we are shielded from all of your wrath. He absorbed it on the cross and we are free from sin and death and the judgment that comes through Christ. We thank you, Father, for our Savior, our Lord, our King. We pray that you would bind our hearts to him this week, that we would consider the great salvation that he has worked through this passage, that we would meditate on what it means to, to be not under the law but under grace and yet to see the beauty of the law as Christians. Father, we thank you for this time. We, we thank you for the time now we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We ask that you would be with us. Uh, we pray that we would examine our hearts, that there would be fresh repentance, fresh faith. Lord, that your Spirit would guide us to respond well vertically and horizontally in this time of celebration. In Jesus' name, amen.